0: Hello everyone, it's September 6th, 2022, so SLS has not launched yet, for mostly hydrogen reasons. We'll talk about that. Also, Dennis has an interview with some folks involved with Cowbell, a suborbital air spike with two and a half payloads worth of experiments. It's a long show, so let's get it off the pad and lift off! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 375 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Alright, well welcome back, Ben. Thank you! I'm alive. I guess it's good that we're all here because this is a big show this week. Um, we have,
1: did anything happen? <laughs> well, there's some Shockingly, stuff that didn't no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the point, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. That's what we have. Yeah, we have a whole lot of non-events to talk about. And we also have an interview coming up, uh, which you did, Dennis, a couple weeks ago now, I guess. Mm. So, yeah, big show. I guess we should just get on with the news for once. So, let's do that. <laughs> I guess we should talk about the Artemis 1 uh, failure to launch, which uh, last week we kind of made a joke that we didn't mention it at all. And uh, I guess we're making up for it this week, but we're not <laughs> – I mean, we, we don't have a launch to talk about still, which I kind of, you know, I am I mean, I kind of predicted this, but that's, again, not much of a prediction because so many things can go wrong. And uh, what has this been – Two launch attempts now, and no dice. So uh, apparently, there's just some some sensor issues and a leaky valve as well.
2: I don't think you can say just anything with SLS. Yeah. It's always
0: well, it all has to do with hydrogen. It seems, I think that's the theme, right? Would yeah. that be fair to say?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Uh,
0: problems with hydrogen, which isn't surprising, because hydrogen is a very difficult molecule to uh, control. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So... Well, yeah, it, it it gets it's more than just tiny little leaks, though. So. So as a, as a recap, um, l- two weeks ago, uh, w- there were three launch windows um, in this launch period that, uh, that NASA was targeting. Uh, August 29th, September 2nd, and September 5th. We're recording on Sunday, September 4th, and um, spoiler alert, we're now out of this period. They're, they're not going to do any more launch attempts within this period. So the first attempt was August 29th. Um, my ironic headline of the week comes from space news. Uh, their headline was SLS ready for long delayed first launch. No, it wasn't. Well,
0: it's a good title because I thought you meant that it's a, I guess it's not ironic or, or maybe it's a very apt title, right? Because it's ready for a long delayed first launch as in it'll continue to be delayed. Right. That's kind of, yeah, but it wasn't ready though. Is the problem? Well, it's ready to be long delayed. Is what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. ready to sit on the pad some more. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: right. It's yeah. ready to disappoint. I'm sure everybody working on it is uh, is ready, but the rocket wasn't. So the day before uh, their launch attempt. Oh, two, I'm sorry, two days before. On the 27th, um, there were three lightning strikes to two different lightning rods, which is, uh, kind of, kind of crazy. Lightning strikes while the rocket's on the pad, but it's okay. That's what the lightning rods are there for. And they, uh, they have certain criteria. If it's, you know, a certain type of strike or too strong of a strike, whatever they'll, um, they trigger, um, additional actions. But in this case, they're basically good to go. So that was the 27th. Uh, the day before on the 28th, they were looking at like 80% weather. And then on the actual, uh, day, the 29th, I think the weather was fine the entire day. Um, so the first launch attempt was scrubbed and there were a bunch of different things that happened, but the scrub reason, um, came down to a sensor in one of the four liquid hydrogen, uh, bleed valves or, uh, bleed lines. We, we talked about this before, um, and it's, uh, it's it's the same thing that was happening or the, the same system that was leaking uh, previously. So the bleed lines allow you to flow hydrogen through the engines to get them cooled down, like before you go to an ignition. So it was engine three and its temperature sensors in the engines were fine but the temperature sensor in the bleed line was reading warmer than expected so uh engine 3's uh bleed line temperature sensor um was reading a higher uh, a higher temperature than the other bleed line sensors but also like much higher than the sensors inside the engine right like i think i think the engine is going to read cooler than the bleed line, but like there should be a relationship, like a known relationship there, I'm assuming. Um, but comparing engine three's bleed line to the other bleed lines, we were seeing a pretty reasonable difference, negative 380 Fahrenheit uh, or negative 193 Celsius versus negative 410 Fahrenheit, negative 245 Celsius. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a pretty decent difference there, 193 to 245. And so that, that malfunction or the, the difference was spotted. They uh, must have violated um, some flight rule. Actually, I don't think it was It was like a written flight rule. I think they saw it and they're like, eh, this doesn't look great. And so they decided to scrub. And the scrub might have also, this decision might have been contributed to by some of the other issues we'll talk about in a sec. But what they did was they scrubbed the launch, but they kept the vehicle fueled so they could collect additional data. And that data allowed them to be fairly confident in saying, yeah, this is a sensor malfunction rather than like an engine function. Chubby in the chat says I wish the Rankin scale would just die already. Yeah, so I'd never heard of the Rankin scale. R-I-N-K-I-N-E, uh maybe Rankina. Um, but yeah, the the Rankin scale is basically um kelvin but with fahrenheit degrees instead of celsius degrees
1: yeah you tie you tie you still have absolute zero but each unit of temperature is now a degree fahrenheit relative to above absolute zero
2: so i think it's a material science thing i think it's helpful for like material science done in imperial measurements but like we already have three temperature scales we don't need a fourth (laughs) honestly we could do with two
1: yeah, but I feel, yeah, a lot of us, I think, learned, though, that this is also a NASA thing, apparently.
2: <laughs> at oh, least really? For SLS. I mean, NASA does work in the Imperial system far too often, but they're getting better. Okay, so for this one particular issue, the temperature sensor, they decided that for future attempts, they're just going to ignore that sensor. If the issue reoccurs, uh, they, they're they just going to say, "Ah, eh, we're not going to look at it. So the reason that I say that, I don't think that any flight rules were violated, but it was like a human... Uh, a human input, hey, maybe this is something we need to look at, um, is because this instrument is not a flight instrument. It's actually just an engineering analysis uh, sort of tool. And so they don't have to do any variable masking in the computer um, because no computers look at this to determine uh, vehicle health. For, uh, attempt number two, they did decide to start the engine three cool down 30 to 45 minutes earlier. So that's during the fast fill period. They're going to start cooling engine three. Um, and that's not to try and, uh, make the sensor happy. <laughs> it's, it's just to give them extra time, um, to make a good decision before they get to their go no go. Mike Serafin, uh, the Artemis mission manager, Had a, not a quote, but a paraphrased quote in a space news article that I kind of like. He said, uh, with 2020 hindsight is now clear. Those sensors are not the best means of measuring the status of the engine. Um, kind of, kind of a fun, uh, look back. Like, yeah, you know, we probably should have picked another way to do this, but this Mm -hmm. is what we got. Okay. So two additional issues. Um, there was a small LH2 leak in the tail service mast. It's the exact same, uh, LH2 leak that we saw before, the same symptom. Who knows if it's a different cause? But we talked about that uh during the the green run. Um and that exactly the same thing happened again. Uh so it was small enough that they just are like, yeah, we don't need to cancel this mission for that. There was also a crack in the TPS, the thermal protection system, uh, atop a flange on the inner tank. I don't know which flange it was, but we know what the inner tank area is, right? The area between the tanks so you know maybe all three of these um cropping up at the same time caused the abort maybe if just one maybe even if just two had shown up they wouldn't have aborted but i i tend to think that that temperature sensor on its own was all they needed to to call it quits
1: and just just for my own clarity so when they say tps they're talking about the foam on the core i believe so tp i hear tps i think tiles immediately and i just yeah. exactly. realized that
2: yeah and i don't know if it's if it's a f- part of the foam, I'm assuming it is, but you know, the thermal protection system also includes like the paint and like, so, you know, it might just be a paint crack. Who knows?
1: That's true. Even on shuttle, it was more expansive than just tiles, right? The blankets.
0: Yeah. In this case, the thermal protection system, is that there to protect or to keep it cool or like obviously, but in order to keep the cold, yeah, to keep the cold in rather than
2: the (laughs) heat out, I guess. I mean, while you're ascending through the atmosphere, there is friction that, that is heating up. So, I mean, it's kind of yeah. two ends of the same uh, of the same animal, but I agree. I think that's the right way to look at it. Okay. Um, so the second attempt originally was going to be on September 2nd, but they pushed it back a day to September 3rd. I don't think anybody knows exactly why they did this, but one of the reasons that they cited was, or one of the things that they said that they were doing in that extra day was taking a look at the tail service mast leak. But we don't know if that was the cause, if that was just like a nice "hey, we can do this" kind of incidental thing. By the way, that leak uh, appears to have been a loose pressure sensor, so they uh, replaced the seal, they retorqued the sensor, um, and that appears to have fixed that issue. But I want to read a quote from the NASA uh, from one of the NASA spaceflight articles. Uh, this was the fourth time teams loaded liquid hydrogen onto the vehicle, and the fourth time something in the LH two TSMU leaked hydrogen. <laughs> mm. So, um, yeah, uh, there there was a, a further leak. But first, let me let me go back to the launch date. Uh, they pushed the launch back to September third. There was a possible alternate window uh, on September fourth, but they decided not to go all the way to the fourth because. Interestingly enough, if the upper stage underperformed, if they launched during that window, they would have wound up with increased eclipse uh, occurrences or maybe increased eclipse periods. I tend to think the eclipses would have been longer uh, as the long end of the of the orbit rotated into Earth's shadow. But it's kind of interesting that they had this this one. Like, eh, it, we don't think the upper stage is going to underperform, but if it does. We'll be safe, but on the way to the moon, we're going to have more eclipses and we're going to have power issues. Let's just not even uh, Mm -hmm. worry about that. And it's interesting that that was identified so late.
1: I know, right? You just think about how many of these kind of considerations have to go into every aspect of this mission.
2: I mean, every mission, but especially like Mm -hmm. such a high visibility, expensive, expensive mission. So the second launch attempt was on September 3rd. Uh, A little earlier on August the 30th, they were predicting 60% weather for September 3rd. I I don't know what the actual weather forecast was closer to it, but like 60% weather is pretty bad. Um The flight rules say that they're not even allowed to start tanking if there's a 40% chance of rain or a 20% chance of lightning. And so, you know, 60% go is not 60%. It's going to rain. It's like, 60% chance that these rules won't be violated. But even with a, a 60%, um, the window, the launch window was two hours, and they said, you know what? Even if it starts raining, hopefully in there we'll have enough room for the for the weather to clear. But as previously spoiled, um, they did scrub the second attempt, and they scrubbed it for an LH2 leak. Now it wasn't the leak coming out of the sensor instead it was a a a much bigger leak right that sensor was like a tiny little just like a hiss this is this is actually a pretty big leak the rule is you can't get above 4% ambient hydrogen concentration in the area i believe in the area of the tail service mast and in this case they violated that 4% concentration rule by 2 to 3 times so we're talking like 8 what 8 to 12% of the air in this area <laughs> was hydrogen. That's not good. That's bad. Um, so they believe that the leak was coming from the quick disconnect, which is where the leak was coming from during the green, green run. So they actually had a couple of things that they had figured out that they could do to potentially fix this issue when it cropped up again. So uh, first they let, the uh the quick disconnect warm up. They weren't flowing uh hydrogen through it. They let it warm up and then they cooled it back down again and the hope was that some of this thermal expansion would, you know, jiggle things into place. That didn't mm. work. So then they uh again stopped the liquid hydrogen flow. They closed a valve. I <laughs> I don't know which valve they closed, uh, but apparently this is a valve in addition to the valve that's controlling the flow of liquid hydrogen but then they blasted in helium like high pressure helium from the ground support systems or the ground support equipment they blasted in heli- uh, helium to try and get the fitting to like reseat itself and stop leaking that didn't work um so their third attempt was um the temperature cycling again and that also didn't work and that's when they uh called a scrub so that's two launch attempts and two scrubs Um, they are not going to try a third time within this window. Uh, previously there was, um, a window on the fifth, which is, uh, tomorrow as we're recording this. Um, so Monday, I I don't know if they considered, um, using the fifth, but there was an additional window, uh, on the sixth on Tuesday, but it's a really short window. It's at the end of the day. And so, uh, I, I think. My sense is that they had already eliminated the fifth as an option. They looked at the sixth. It wasn't great. They said, let's not even try it. Let's um, just push to the next period. So this was launch period 25. Um, launch period twenty six and twenty seven are both options we don 't know if they 're going to um, be ready to go for the twenty for period twenty six but period twenty six is september twentieth through october fourth period twenty seven is october seventeenth through october thirty first it 's Halloween How cool would a Halloween mm-hmm. launch be so which period they end up selecting is basically down to whether they can fix this leak on the pad or not if they have to roll back i think uh, twenty six and twenty seven may be both out of uh, out of the decision tree out of the decision tree let's go with that one. <laughs> that, that sounds spacey off the table I don't know like off the table you. <laughs> there you go that's what my brain was trying to get to Um but their 25 day FTS battery certification is running out I haven't done the math I haven't looked at a calendar I I think to even get to period 26 they would need to extend out from 25 days So my, my expectation is that we might wind up coming back to this, uh, next week, um, with some more information about, um, about the quick disconnect leak. Um, Jeff Faust had been, uh, tweeting, uh, quoting Mike Serafin saying, I I think this is from the same late breaking, (laughs) uh, Mm. press conference that confirms that they're rolling back to the VAB. It, It sounds like they had an issue where they commanded the wrong valve. To open, which might have caused uh, an overpressure in that hydrogen line. So uh, maybe we'll get more information about that and be able to talk more about it uh, next week, which would be pretty cool. But until then, uh, I wanted to point out an article on America Space, which is pretty cool. Uh, Jim Hillhouse, one of their, I believe he's one of their uh, reporters, built an AR. uh, I think it's an iOS app. It's an app in a Dropbox account. So I don't know if there's an iOS version or if it's just Android, but it's a, it's an augmented reality, uh, viewer for Orion. So like you can like put a model of Orion on your desk and look at it with your phone, you know, Mm -hmm. um, look, look at a CG model floating above your desk. I think these are always cool. And, uh, it's, it's neat to see the community doing fun little things like this. So there's a link in the show notes. Oh, actually, you know what? It's, it is an iOS app. So I want to go try it out, even though like these AR experiences are like good for about two seconds worth of fun. It's still a good two seconds worth of fun. Um, (laughs) But yeah, link in the show notes.
0: So this week, uh, back to three shortened sweets by three separate people. Dennis, you're the first. So what is it? First up, Me and Astra
1: make propulsion sales. French startup Thrustme announced plans to provide seven iodine cold gas propulsion systems for Spire Global's Lemur satellite constellation. The company has already delivered more than 20 of these systems to clients, and earlier this year announced plans for a factory capable of manufacturing one propulsion unit per day. Meanwhile, Astra Space announced that it won a contract to provide an unspecified number of electric propulsion systems to Airbus OneWeb satellites. The Astra spacecraft engine electric thruster, originally developed by Apollo Fusion before it was acquired by Astra, uses xenon or krypton as propellants. This good news comes after Astra has recently struggled to reach orbit with its Rocket 3, now switching focus to its next orbital vehicle.
0: And next up China proposes orbital nuclear reactor. A project for providing power and propulsion in space has recently passed a comprehensive performance evaluation. While no technical details nor plans for the nuclear reactor were stated in the reports, this latest milestone comes after some hardware had been built and a prototype design had been completed last year. The Ministry of Science and Technology aims for the reactor to generate a megawatt of electricity or roughly eight times the power needs of the ISS. China already has experience with some nuclear technology in space. For example, its Chang'e lunar
2: lander was powered by a plutonium radioisotope Peter or RAQ. All right, and finally, South Korea seeks funding for ambitious lunar project. The Korean Aerospace Research Institute or KARI is hoping to secure 459 million dollars for funding for a 2031 lunar lander that will launch aboard its next-generation carrier rocket currently under development. The lander would weigh 1.8 tons and be equipped with a rover, volatile substance detector, and nuclear power generator, and would operate on the lunar surface for one year. Kari plans to work with other domestic organizations in its development of the lander in order to bolster South Korea's burgeoning aerospace industry. Okay, stand by We're looking at it. Questions,
0: comments, and corrections, and uh, Tom. Tom, what is Tom? Tom?
1: Yes, yeah, so uh, MMC in our Discord saw a Sky and Telescope uh, article about uh, something very topical uh, to the last twist that I gave uh, about spent rocket stages in, in orbit. This wasn't a spent rocket stage, but apparently some astronomers think that 2018 AV2 could possibly be uh, Snoopy, which was the lem from Apollo 10. And so, uh, while that's not certainly established or not, MMC had the thought experiment of well, what if we, what would it take to send a mission there cheaply to really just check it out? Because right now it's uh, almost 35 million miles from Earth, but in July 2037, it's going to be only 4 million miles from Earth, which is, you know, much much closer to get to. And so either you maybe heat something at it really quickly, like just a CubeSat to do some quick snooping uh, of Snoopy uh, (laughs) with a flyby, whether you do that now or you wait till it's closer and launch uh, sometime in the 2030s. But just as a fun idea of like, what would it take to maybe kit out a 6U or 12U CubeSat with everything you need and do it as cheap as you can with all commercial off-the-shelf parts and It's just a really fun discussion that a lot of people were chiming in on, which I love to see. Uh, uh, Iron Man, uh, I see Emery was in there, Cy Kyle, uh, Riley, and yeah, Zach from Breaking Taps. Everybody was kind of contributing in their own way to this.
2: Yeah. So, Emery Stagmer in particular uh, really made me sit up and listen because at first I was like, oh, this is kind of fun. Like, we could, um, you know, do an open source community like mission plan, maybe even like pick out. Uh, hardware and, you know, develop some, you know, make sure that, that we could actually put these things together and they would work and do, uh, an energy budget and, uh, maybe look at, um, you know, the guidance hardware that we would need. But, uh, Emery, <laughs> uh, who, uh, takes idiots like us far too seriously, um, mm-hmm. Emery popped in. He's like, yeah, well, you know, you could probably get funding from NASA for the launch. And he's like, just based on, you know, the rough outline, I think we could probably do this for like a hundred thousand dollars or like two hundred thousand dollars, something like that. And I'm just like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so um I booted up a new channel in Discord. Uh it's called Snoopy. We're currently <laughs> tossing around the name Tom Tom. Uh the orbital mechanics think of missions. I-, I think uh I think Mike in the chat, Mike Stewart came up with the with the joke tom. But like I think it'd be really cool to to maybe do this if the community wants to do this, like we could totally come up with, uh, with mission ideas and do some mission planning and kind of have like a little bit of a Kerbal Space program in real life, uh, game where we see how much of a mission we can plan, try to find the, the potential issues. And who knows, like maybe if we do a good job with, uh, with Snoopy or another mission in the future, like. Maybe we could even get somebody interested in it to, to actually go, go do some of this stuff. Maybe a a university or a nonprofit or something. If we had a full plan to go visit Snoopy, I guess, figure out if it's Snoopy, uh, and potentially, uh, visit Snoopy or something else. But like, if we did that, like, I think I would, I think I'd like to throw money at that. Like, I don't know. The, it, the, I'm sure there are other people who would like to throw money at that. Um I don't want to turn this into like a Kickstarter or anything, but like, it could be really cool to drive some interviews, Uh, you know, to, to go find people to talk about, you know, it's a theoretical concept, but as a, as an interview like Nucleus to go talk about a concrete idea and what is good and bad and what. You know what you need to look out for and like actually generate interview content based on a real life mission plan that we can start working on. So, if all this sounds interesting, come join us in Discord. If you go to our Twitter or to our Reddit, uh, our subreddit, there are links pinned on both. Um, I believe there's also one uh, on our website, there's a link somewhere. And I think the Orbital slash Discord also gets you to a link uh, to an invite. Um, the invites are no longer temporary. You join the server you're on until you leave. Um, but yeah, come join us in discord, uh, check out the channel Snoopy and like, give us some ideas. If somebody wants to, you know, take some, uh, leadership position and start working as a, as a mission manager or a project manager or something like that. And like, uh, start getting us organized. That would be really cool. Um, I can, I can do that. If it comes down to it, but, um, I think it'd be really cool to, to have somebody who knows more than I do working on this. If you're interested, it's here. It it may not be here next week, <laughs> but it's something <laughs> that we're, that we're interested in, uh, right now. Like it, this seems like a really cool, uh, fantasy idea.
1: Well, I, and, and that's the thing too. I want to, I want to say just from my own experience, a lot of these dream big kind of projects are out there, right? People will literally You know, present at conferences about sending cubesats to Uranus and stuff like that. And so I think this, this is one part dream big, but also one part more realistic than a lot of really wild out there Mm -hmm. concepts. And those wild out there concepts are important because even if they are something that, you know, you're going to end up getting technology maybe (laughs) or just ideas uh, that end up being useful in a different context uh, that actually finds uh, itself. Yeah. Um, I totally, a higher, totally
2: TRL. <laughs> <laughs> and and so. by the way, um, not Uranus, but, you know, there is going to be uh, one or more commercial vehicles going to Venus in the near future um, that we could potentially hitch a ride on. Like that was one of the things that kind of convinced me that this was, you know, actually a possibility. Like you could actually do this if you if you had enough time and money and knowledge like you, you could do this without breaking the bank. That would be really cool. So like, I hope, I hope some of this has tweaked your interest. Um, and yeah, Dennis, I think you're, I think you're totally going in the right direction with the idea of nonsense that gets, uh, presented at conferences. Like we could also do that. That would be really fun, Mm -hmm. um, to be like, Hey, we're a podcast and we designed a mission to go do something. So, and when I say we are a podcast, everybody listening to my voice right now is part of the podcast. Like that's, Mm. that's the any strength that the show has comes from the people who listen and comment and correct. And we're, we're Absolutely. all just doing this together. So yeah, it's cool. <laughs> Come do it. Come hang out with us. Very. Cool.
1: All right. Welcome to the interview segment of the show. And we are very excited to have a collection of people to talk about some really exciting things <laughs> that are happening here. And, um, and so uh, I'd like to introduce and welcome Jason Armstrong, who is the director of launch and integration services for tricept, Chris Craddock, who is the CEO of rocket star and Addie Dove, who is the UCF physics professor and also a podcaster. Jason, Chris and Addie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us.
3: Yeah. Great to be here. Nice to be here.
1: So we're going to be talking about a mission. I guess before we start, does the mission have a, a name? that I, I should be referencing at the top level because we got payloads to talk about and we've got software and we've got rockets. Is there an umbrella term I should be using?
4: Uh, well, we've internally called it as launch of the cowbell, which is actually the, the ship's name. So.
1: Okay. So to talk about the launch of the cowbell, maybe we can start with the payloads, what's going to be flying on this cowbell. And so my understanding that is that there's a couple of payloads uh, including one from uh, the University of Central Florida. So Addie, could you tell us a little bit about what you're sending into uh, suborbital space?
5: Sure. Yeah. So we have this great opportunity to, to do this payload with this flight um, and do some of our own testing on a, a little small experiment. Um, so this is the experiment we're flying is the asteroid regolith dynamics experiment or ARDEX, um, which actually has my initials in it, which I love. <laughs> um, and it's basically a scaled version of a payload we've flown on a number of other flights. So we've actually flown it on some suborbital flights and on the ISS. But doing this different version allows us to test um, some of our technology, but also integrating with new systems. And so basically it's a short, tube that has regolith or lunar dirt simulant in it. And it's going to, and it has a mechanism sort of like um, a scissor jack that will move around and allow us to manipulate the regolith in the high and the microgravity conditions. And it will cycle throughout the flight. And we're working with uh, Tricept and the, the vehicle then to test some of these integration and software and things like that.
1: Oh, wow. That's really cool. So what type of uh, sensing do you use to measure what the, the regolith is actually doing in this uh, low gravity or rather weightlessness?
5: Sure. Yeah. Our, so our primary um, sensing mechanism is actually a camera. So in a lot of our experiments, we're trying to visually see what the, these regolith grains do. And so the, the, the regolith or the dust we're using is sort of on the millimeter size scale. And it's when we're in microgravity, we sort of release it so that it can float around and mix. And we look at those interactions then of it bumping into each other, spreading out and sort of how it behaves, because this is sort of like gravity environment on an asteroid, for instance. And so our primary data is a camera on this. We also have some little force sensors in there to see how much we're pushing on the regoliths and things like that. So that was the,
1: the next uh, thing that came right to mind. is, is, is this uh, Are there applications uh, in terms of asteroid science and anything related to, right, we saw this news story coming out about Bennu is basically
5: like a giant ball pit. Yeah. One of the great things about these experiments is that we've been doing some low gravity impact experiments into regolith. So we shoot a marble into dirt, but in a scientific way, right? Um, And um, we explore, like with this payload, we explore how compressing and decompressing regolith changes its um, packing structure. So asteroids are very, very low gravity bodies um, that are covered in regolith, but also are primarily, some of the really small ones are primarily made up of regolith that's sort of loosely bound together. So these experiments help us understand sort of the natural state of these asteroids, but also for exploration purposes, what happens if we go to them and interact with them, how stable they're going to be, how easily the material is moved, things like that. And it's very easy, it turns out, to move stuff.
1: You also imagine potentially uh, straight up space defense, I guess, right? If we want to blast one of these when it's coming at us or whatever type of methods I don't know the government's looking at. Um,
5: Yeah, yeah. One of the big things with planetary defense and with a lot of these um, asteroid detection methods is understanding not only sort of how big things are, but how strong they are, right? So if you have something that's just one solid body, it's going to be very different to try to break that apart than if it's a rubble pile is what we call them, sort of a loose collection of material. And impacting that, if you impact a rubble pile, it might actually sort of like absorb some of the energy of the impactor because it gets spread out and moves around. Or some of the really fine material might go off at faster velocities, right? So it's a really complex dynamic between how you would uh, interact with those different types of planetary bodies.
1: That makes sense. Well, the other co-hosts on the show, David and Ben, know that one of my favorite things is to try to look under the hood. Uh, Because I have the opportunity to ask you questions and uh, get something that isn't very easy to Wikipedia eyes, and so could you tell us a little bit about what the experience was of getting a payload onto the ISS and deployed from there?
5: Sure. Yeah. Um, So I've been—I was involved in a payload that's now flown twice, basically, on the ISS that was actually run out of the Johnson Space Center. Um, So there are folks there at the. I'm going to say the acronym wrong. It used to be ARIES, but it's the group that's involved in astromaterials research. So understanding uh, asteroids and planetary bodies. And they're the folks who do the curation of materials and then also a lot of studies of of those materials themselves. Um, But they were interested in doing some actually sort of like this, like testing ways to do um, rapid payloads and smaller payloads. Um, and so I was working with some folks there and we were like, well, you could do the, the ISS is sort of like an asteroid in terms of its gravity environment. So you can actually do a pretty easy um, experiment where you send up a bunch of dirt. And the, our first payload was just a passive payload. It basically sat there. Um, and we watch we've watched how the, the dust and materials moved around over time. Um, and it's fascinating to see actually how much vibration and acceleration there is on the space station. Um, But so for that, we were able to build the payloads. We didn't have to do a lot of the paperwork for the integration and and working with the ISS office because that was actually handled out of Johnson Space Center. Um, But it's been interesting to work with like with those folks on the payload and getting it up to station and sort of another group built similar to this a little bit is that another group built the software for it um, and some of the electronics, um, a group at Texas A&M had done that. And so it's it's interesting to have an experience where you build a payload and you build hardware and your electronics, but then you have to integrate with another group's software and another group's electronics. Um, and so it's it's been interesting for us to do these different types of, of payloads that give us a chance to test science, but also a little bit of technology and gives other folks a chance to also develop their technology and applications.
1: Oh, that's really, really cool. Do, can I ask which, uh, which module was it located
5: at? Oh, you can't ask. It was on one of the express racks.
1: So, Ardex, uh, so I learned about this, uh, the launch of the cowbell and what you all are doing uh, when you made your big uh, announcement at SmallSat, which as of this recording was last week. Two weeks ago? It was
0: last Last week.
4: Last week.
1: (laughs) <laughs> time week, time
5: yeah. the, time dilation the semester
1: starts next week and so i'm, I'm exactly in a, yeah, i'm in a weird space now Yeah. so uh when i was reading about your big announcement um ardex seemed to have a different uh nickname to it is this the same as the Entrapulator?
5: Have.
3: The intrapulator,
5: yeah, yes. <laughs> okay. yeah. So the intrapulator is the name that I haven't yet trademarked um, for our. Uh, it's basically a scissor jack, but it's a small um, sort of scissor jack that's controlled with a small linear, a mini linear actuator, um, and it's just a way that we can provide compression and sort of intrapulate uh, our regolith material. Um, so it provides compression at some points during the flight, and then it can compress, and then it gives room for the material to move around. Yeah. So this is a we we renamed it a little bit, um, but it is flying our entrapulator system, which has now flown on a number of <laughs> payloads. I was I was hearkening to the um the turbo encabulator, I think, when I uh, came up with Entrapulator names. That's uh
1: is that Calvin and Hobbes?
5: No, it's well maybe, but it's there's this a fun YouTube video for or well it was a fun video that you could find of this person explaining the turbo encabulator. As a, as a real concept. Oh, I know not.
1: exactly what you mean. Yeah, they're using very like deadpan, serious language, but it's all yes. kind of jump. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm, th- I'm thinking of the transmogrifier, maybe. It was like oh, a yeah. cardboard box <laughs> you climb in and come out a different... Yeah.
5: Like. yeah okay.
1: Sorry. <laughs> now, I understand um, another one of the main pay- uh, payloads that's flying is has been built and developed by BYU, Brigham Young University. Uh, which I imagine was a much uh, shorter drive to get to uh, Logan, Utah for SmallSat for anybody from BYU that wanted to go. Uh, So this was uh, Motron 2. Could you tell us uh, a little bit
2: about that?
3: Yeah, so um, Dr. David Long and his team uh, within the engineering department there at Brigham Young University also participate very heavily in an amateur rocketry environment. And so their students, um, I think more than once a year, go off and do these um, competitions with other universities and they're all creating their own small rockets. And when we reached out to Dr. Long about whether or not they had any experiments that were running the right kind of operating system to work with our tricep software, what they came forward with was that the students have been working on a couple of different suites of sensor systems in order to instrument those small rockets that they're doing in the rocketry environment um in order to recover flight dynamic data you know vibration you know three axis positioning all of all of these different types of approach temperature and humidity and so what they were able to do was for lack of a better more uh engineering term of it is cobble together a number of uh multiple experiment sensors into a single cubesat form factor package that's all driven by a single power source that we're getting from the Rocket Star vehicle. And then we went through the software integration pr- process to get RT cell software integrated with their operating system on each of the individual sensor boards. So what it will result in doing throughout the flight of the cowbell is actually recording the flight dynamic environment. Um, and post-flight, when we recover the payloads and bring it back, they'll be able to do all the post data analysis and give us report out on, you know, different accelerations that we may have saw or, or Chris and his team would then be able to translate that to a lot of the data they're getting from their instrumentation and identify specific mock events and things like that, that happen with the the flight of the vehicle.
1: I can imagine that um, a lot of times when you read about uh, a a mission, uh, it's easy to lose track or underappreciate just how important, Uh, characterizing the flight dynamics of it is and this sounds like a great way to do that
3: yeah and I mean I look at it also from this is a very good demonstration of a open collaboration environment where each individual you know component of the mission everybody's getting their own little advantage or their own benefit from participation either from student involvement in the projects or actual you know dynamic data that we're recording Tricept, obviously, was was uh, invested in trying to get our software onto an actual satellite-type platform and exposed to a flight dynamic environment on a rocket. And from the Rocket Star perspective, Tricept and Rocketstar have been partnered for a number of years now, working towards the development of the cowbell that then transitions to their newer and larger vehicle for orbital insertion uh, later in 23 or 24. And we are participating with them in the payload accommodations arena. And how do you set up all the interfaces for hosting multiple payload, you know, manifests or or large, you know, singular payloads? How do how do we go about that integration process and all the documentation and everything that's required to to perform those missions?
1: So speaking of which, uh, could you tell us about the uh, the T cell software that'll be flying? Because that seems like the kind of third major thing that's going to be uh, taken up on the launch of the Calvary.
3: It is really large push for us, um, and we're super appreciative of the opportunity that this environment that we just talked about collaboratively makes available to us. When reaching out to payloads to interface with, you kind of go into the overkill method, ask everybody in hopes of getting one person willing to sign up. So the fact that we got two universities that, that we're able to engage, and then we could Uh, redirect and and be able to accommodate both payloads on the mission, I think is even more valuable to us from a T-Cell perspective. So T-Cell is an acronym for the Tricep Security Enhanced Layer. You're going to get a little bit of the layman's term explanation of it, not a software developer's explanation because I'm an integrator, not a software developer. But the basic premise of it is is a Linux-based operating system integrates directly with a satellite, that is operating with that kind of um, software and provides essentially a security overlay, plugging from, from, again, that layman's perspective, plugging all of the vulnerabilities and trying to set a satellite up to be in a better security position um, from an operational standpoint. Again, a very easy explanation would be making your satellite less hackable, right? It also comes with a very robust suite of interface detail and, and a, a user interface during the actual flight of the mission where you can go up and, and pull down data subsets to identify if you've been interrogated, if somebody's tried to break in, if there's been a, a vulnerability exposed that you can then upload a patch and close it right so it gives you more security utility with your satellite platform in addition to that initial first layer of closing all of those vulnerabilities so
1: longer term who do you see as t cells clients or customers ultimately is this uh, for a particular type of
3: so yeah i mean so first level we 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 now have the the product at a point that we've put it through enough regimen of testing and in laboratory exposure and we believe this kind of environmental exposure on the launch vehicle is yet another step towards, um, showing a confidence factor in its capability to operate in a, in a domain of being on a launch vehicle and a satellite. Um, next steps would be for it to actually get on orbit flight heritage. Um, but the initial push is for, um, it aligns very well with small satellite builders. There's, a sizable amount of them using Linux-based operating systems, then it can translate eventually to additional operating systems and spread to to larger satellite platforms and those that are using real-time operating systems and things of that regard. But I think there are future applications for it as well on the ground network side of the... I mean, you've got security on both ends of a communication path, right? So, So there are other areas to continue to exploit this Security capability and it what it can do for your communication and control.
1: Well, that definitely seems to be the sort of uh, thrust that things are going. No pun intended, right? In terms of uh, uh, security on orbit, and so um, I've always wondered whenever I hear about software uh, flying on orbit uh, as part of a tech demo or otherwise. uh, Have you physically incorporated it with uh, either Ardex or Motron too, or is it like in a flat set? Mode where it's kind of sitting out there by itself, or is it its own physical package that you have
3: our our software people worked directly with each university's software developing teams for each of the experiments and directly integrated t cell to the operating system and then worked collaboratively to identify and and uh correctly connect all the board support packages and all of the memory allocations and how the the software interacts as they Power up and go run their actual mission. The last thing you want it to be is detrimental to how their program and and everything would operate. It it should be transparent to them. From a what do we learn in this experiment or what do we learn in this environment is hopefully both experiments are able to operate throughout the entire flight of the vehicle. Um, We will be powering them up very close to liftoff time. At that time, both payloads will go fully active and remain in that state throughout the, the flight. We, we hope to then recover both payloads and watch really cool videos of the Entrapulator doing its, uh, its job and recover all the data from the sensors of the BYU payload. That then translates to us from a successful standpoint that our software continue to operate with the operating system without Injecting any error, there was no single event upsets. We didn't shut any power lines down. We didn't, right? So there are many aspects of that just to look at from a successful exposure to the environment. Not to mention, we want to be able to aid in, you know, Rocketstar getting super valuable data from a test flight of their, their engine and their vehicle.
5: Yeah, and I would, I would add um, to, to a little bit of what you said earlier was that we had primarily students working on this payload, and it was modifying some of a payload that we'd previously flown, but we actually hadn't run the specific one um, off of like a Raspberry Pi before, for instance. So we had redeveloped some of our software, and then it was really amazing experience for them to get to work with tricep on developing the software packages. And and like Jason said, going back and forth between what our software needed to do to run our experiment and what their um, package was and how we integrated that all together. So it was a really exciting experience, I think, (laughs) for the students um, to be able to get involved in that whole uh, interaction.
3: And I know our software guy has spoken to the fact that he really enjoyed working with the students and right Great. yeah and raspberry, raspberry pi wasn't a, an operating system they had integrated it with to date right so it was a good a good step forward for them as well
5: yeah
1: that's wonderful so do the students include undergraduates
5: yep um one of the students working on it had what had like technically was graduated already um but uh the other students working on it are all undergrads
1: that's that's
5: I, I love that. That's
3: wonderful. Yeah. And pre- the predominance of the team from BYU are all undergrads.
5: Yeah, we have, we have a number. So we have the um, Stephen Hawking Center for Microgravity Research and Education is sort of our umbrella organization here in our department um, that we have a number of students and it's primarily undergrads. There are some graduate students, but we have undergrads involved in this whole life cycle of all of our flight projects. So parabolic flights, these rocket flights now, and um, suborbital flights. They build the payloads, they design aspects of them, they get to do the software from them. And I would say getting students to, that are able to do software is always a challenge. So it's exciting to like have this opportunity. For sure.
1: Jason, I, I'm glad if you're an integration guy, how are these physically integrated into the payload?
3: So we, so we worked very closely with Rocketstar on the early development stage of how we were going to fly the configuration for the Cowbell vehicle. And early on, we were specifically looking at a water recovery type of approach, where we were either going to land, launch from a land-based um, launch site near um, Kennedy Space Center, or even the possibility of launching off of a, a seaborne platform, where our flight arc would take us out over the ocean, and then we would recover the payload. Um In that regard, the engineering team from the support contractor that works with Rocketstar developed a uh, a nose cone approach that is filled with a um, structural density um, support foam material that would both aid in the flotation of that nose cone at, at the recovery point, but help us in stopping the water ingestion and not ruining everything we just did. So when we started looking at how we were going to house and and be able to accommodate these payloads, the easiest mechanism and the most protective manner we could do it in was to carve out a cavity within the uh, foam portion of the nose cone that we could then put a small uh, container that would hold both payloads and they would be strapped down. And then they are wired down through an interface to the avionics of the launch vehicle.
1: Something like that I just think is so cool. I, I had no idea how you really set something like that up. and so
3: I just explained it like it was all on my idea. And it <laughs> Lee, Lee is a support guy on the Rocket Star side for, for their team who's doing all their avionics and their payload accommodation stuff. So we just work directly with him going back and forth on here's what the size of the payloads are going to be. Here's how much area we're going to need. This is how we're going to make this work and then uh about 3 weeks ago now i guess chris it was we had a yeah. uh, a test activity down in florida at the rocket star facility where we brought both payloads and we did a fit check in the nose cone connected them and made sure the launch vehicle when it applies their their power source they do turn on and actuate as we expect um so that was a very successful test environment and and got us to a to another level of confidence that we're ready to go forward with the flight we had a, f- a few more steps. Rocket Star still needed to complete with the launch vehicle to get us out to the launch site, but uh, it's getting awful close now. So,
4: <laughs> yeah, in three weeks in counting now. Uh, Tensor Innovation uh, Lee's company. They they really got that cavity tight. Uh, we put the uh, two satellites side by side and put it in the insert vehicle, then put it in the cavity it was probably less than a millimeter of, 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 give, if not less. And, and Lee kind of quipped, he's like, yeah, you know, that was a, a, a swag. And I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's 40 years of experience swag right there. And he's like, yeah, well, that's too, yeah. So yeah, it's quite an interesting event. And, you know, the video on our YouTube, YouTube page is quite nice to watch too. You can actually see them do the actual inserts uh, and all the, the interior of, of the rocket to what we could show was in there too.
1: Well, that that does sound impressive and we will have to include that video in our show notes. <laughs> well, I think this this is a perfect opportunity now to start talking about the uh the mission itself and the rocket. So, Chris, could you tell us a little bit about Cowbell including where the name came from? Cuz I have my own speculation uh, for where it came from, but it sounds like a really impressive vehicle and so I'd love to hear about it.
4: Well, thank you. Uh to answer your question directly about the name, we were all sitting around a table one day and discussing what we wanted to do, and, and we wanted to open up space for everyone. And, and not only that, but also have on-time, reliable, rapid access to space. So we were trying to come up with names, and we were all kind of like, well, you know, this, this one thing that space needs, it's more cowbell. Yes. So that's predominantly where it came from. And we just kept rolling with it. Like, you know, like, well, when we, we ran into mission problems, like, well, if Bruce Dickinson says he wants more cowbell, I'm going to have to give it to him. So we gotta we gotta maintain this mission.
1: That's uh for the record. That is what I what I was guessing. <laughs> and so <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for for any uh, younger listeners, uh, <laughs> '90s at uh, Saturday Night Live with Christopher Walken. Just uh, YouTube for cowbell, oh, yeah. and you'll you'll find it.
4: Yep.
5: Plus, then in future flights, you can say now we have more more cowbell.
4: Yeah, we we were toying with ideas is like, do we make a cowbell too, or do we just call a cowbell, or just call it more cowbell or extra cowbell <laughs> and then too much cowbell, you
1: know? And so, okay. So you, uh, now is this a, okay. So the first stage of this rocket, is this a multi-stage rocket? It's a sub-orbital vehicle.
4: negative. It is a, so from the beginning, we designed this to be a fully reusable single stage to orbit launch vehicle. Um, So it's been a stair-step campaign to do a small test vehicle, uh, about five foot, that we did about nine suborbital launches on, Uh, actually eight. We did a a ninth one off of a a larger airframe that was more traditional uh, engine, but we needed some shock and vibe data to help us with uh, designing the ultimate vehicle that we see now. Uh, But yeah, from the beginning, we, we were working on this to be just one stage.
1: I mean, the thing that stands out to me the most is that it's powered by an aerospike engine. And so were these uh, previous demos done with uh, an aerospike in there?
4: Yeah, we had an additive manufactured uh, nozzle that we did for the the smaller uh, vehicle. It came off of a different kind of design. We've since matured it a little bit because uh, from a liquid-fueled standpoint, that was a solid. The the temperatures, the, the fluid dynamics, a lot of it changed. So we had to do a, a, a different redesign uh, for this larger one, and we'll probably do three or four more before we're done. But it's yeah, just how things go.
1: Right, right. With the idea being that after uh, these suborbital flights, you would then have your orbital vehicle, which is uh, SSTO orbital, which is, uh, I mean,
4: yeah. And let's let's hope it's it's the Grail, and we're 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 marching towards it. But you know, just like with, uh, I forgot the night that went uh, looking for it. He had his own journey to get there we're, we're going to have our own oh Galahad. there we go
1: I was going to say right it's one of the g ones I knew <laughs> I knew it started with the G <laughs> so what kind of propellants does cowbell use?
4: currently it's uh, kerosene and peroxide
1: and uh, I guess stepping back a little bit um why an aerospike uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people know the advantages, but maybe not everybody uh, does
4: so when I was first starting this company, I, I recognized that there had to be a special sauce there had to be a reason why this this was going to be a better company than what's out there. Musk was already doing his thing. Bezos was jumping on. So there was a lot of uh, uh, technical prowess as well as capital uh, being thrown at it. And so when I started searching around, Aerospike kept popping up, and but it wasn't used. And I didn't understand why until I started talking to engineers, NASA or otherwise. And ultimately, it came down to two things. Computing power hadn't been there at that point, and thermal properties of materials hadn't quite gotten there yet. Or more accurately, they were just really expensive. So what changed what made us want to attempt this, but those two things came in line and were cheap and easy to get. Uh, When we did our smaller tests, we had a problem with the titanium that we did. We did another material that was 3D printed for us. And in thirteen days I had it in my hand ready to test. So the turnaround on this stuff is, is much better than it was twenty years ago the last time that they really put uh did a push on. It. And I kept I kept asking people, like, cause people would push back like, oh, you know, it'll never work for this reason or the other. I'm like, okay, why? And they would give me certain answers, but the engineering was always sound. Uh the biggest pushback I got was, well, it's more efficient on a two stage to have a bell nozzle. I'm like, yeah, but you wouldn't use an aerospike on a two stage. So that, it, it, it for me, it, it kind of just spoke probably the same way it did to the Wright brothers. Why people weren't doing heavier than air flight. They were they were like, well, we're fine with dirigibles and we can do that just fine. It's like, well, why can't we do heavier than air? You know, what's the, what's the problem with doing that? So that, it was that sort of discussion that came up with the, the aerospike.
1: That makes sense. Like, you know, I, you think about it that way, the, the kind of, I guess, most well-known aerospike would be the, uh, the X-33 Venture Star, and that was in the 90s, which is not, you know, 10 years ago <laughs> as we continue deeper and deeper into this century, yeah. even and some of us like to think that way. Um,
4: Jack Fox, uh, who's on our advisory board and also uh, you know, uh, part of the, the chief operating officer crew, uh, he was on the ground uh, crew when they were running that, those experiments, and he basically said that you know it, the engine worked fine. It was just leak checks were really difficult because you had all those different chambers that, whenever there was a, a loss of thrust and what, whatever degree, it was very difficult from a computing standpoint to figure out where it was. Now you can probably do it all on your phone.
1: Yeah, yeah, and right, and the whole problem with it was uh, that ultimately sank it. I think was was related to tanks, right? And some kind of yeah. fancy tanks that they were trying to.
4: And, and and if you look at the uh, if, if you look at the engineering afterwards, they actually went back to that and they did it with uh, I don't think it was a composite material. I think it was actually a stainless steel additive manufacturer that they did or somehow I don't know how they did that uh, and worked it out such that they could do it for that fuel type. Although one of the reasons why we're doing peroxide and, and kerosene and not going not doing liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. One of the reasons for that is that. Uh, Hydrogen is just so difficult to contain, transport, fuel, what have you. Uh, Peroxide just made a lot more sense for that reason. And our research on the Black Arrow and also one of the the subcontractors uses uh, peroxide for a lot of missions. It just seemed, for for future use, it seemed a lot better uh, because if we ever get to runway capable, this could work out pretty well.
1: So what kind of a uh, spike do you use? Do you use a, a cone? Is it truncated? Um, I figure linear seems way too big for uh, a suborbital vehicle.
4: Yeah, I, I think if and when we decide to go fixed wing, linear makes more sense. But for this airframe shape, it seemed like the way to go. It is a truncated spike. That that was kind of a difficult part because of the, you know, that's and that's a lot, a lot of people push back on is that the cooling of the spike is really difficult. But in this iteration, we use a lot of ablative cork, uh, but we do have materials that we're actually field testing on this one on a different end of the rocket <laughs> that has an upper limit of about 2,000 C before it, it gets started miss, misshapen. Uh, so we're very uh, – there's a lot of encouraging materials out there that if this one doesn't work, we have other ones as backup. So very interesting. I spoke to another one yesterday that was uh, carbon nanotubes, or a uh, variation thereof. Uh, so it may not work for a temperature side, and we'll have that a different material, but as a base, using that, it's essentially, if, if there's any shearing, it'll act like a zipper and just lock itself up.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you said it, because that, that was my next question, was how, how were you going to uh, solve the sort of cooling issues uh, where you have a much larger surface area that you have to uh, keep cool?
4: To, to further on that, the, the chambers were using phenolic glass, uh, which is the same stuff they use on the shuttle. Uh, but I think we're going to upgrade that to a different material that uh, that I can't discuss <laughs> uh, because uh, this is only probably at most an eight-minute flight. So uh, and of that, the power is probably less than four minutes. So we kind of figure it's not going to need that much to, to, to keep it from melting.
1: How how uh, what kind of altitude are you targeting?
4: Targeting eighty thousand feet, uh, but the the calculations that we've been doing originally it was for an angle of about 65 degrees when we were working with nasa now we're at an 85 degree uh rail and originally we thought we were probably just going to get transonic maybe supersonic but in doing a lot more monte carlos with nasa we we understood now that it's going to probably do at least mach three and a half so we're maybe it's going to top over 80 but we don't know how many, uh, how many combustion
1: chambers? Eight. Eight. Okay. So I was very excited to hear about the vehicle itself. So my, uh, kind of final questions to wrap things up before we get into our, uh, more fun, uh, ones, but the last one, I guess, would any, my last question with any meat on its bones is, uh, what are, what's the timeline for, uh, your upcoming launches, right? I think I heard three weeks before. And, um, and then I guess we've kind of touched on the future plans, but, uh, if you could, uh, Know, touch on that, uh, including you know Jason and Eddie. Uh, what's what's next for you know RDX as well as uh, T cell.
4: So the next launch will be September 10th out of the Mojave for this mission. We have I think it's already on the range calendar. Yeah, I'm sorry, it is on the range calendar as well as the NASA calendar. Uh, a second mission on March 23rd, 2023, and ideally we'll be doing about 200,000 feet on that one. And we're starting to now pencil in our third one for end of 23 with another customer.
3: And we're actively engaging with different you know um, organizations and, and even applications that are looking for possible opportunities that they could get on a suborbital flight. And as we talked about with the March mission and the one behind it, a, a much higher expectation of microgravity exposure, um, always taking steps forward in the growth factor of how we're doing payload accommodations, payload interfaces, even graduating eventually hopefully to a second s- staging event or separation event such that we could test separation of payloads. So we'll, we'll continue to keep developing those and and uh, on behalf of the teaming kind of environment here, TriSup will be actively talking with those in the suborbital community as well as into the future with in-orbit separation. All of the different Types of organizations that maybe are doing R and D type of projects and can take a little more risk and go in the earlier manifests of a developing new rocket at a much lower cost potential where there's some trade off between the, t- the organizations. But very much like we just did this experiment, everybody, you know, coming to the table to get their piece of the, the advantage, but in a very much collaborative work it all together sense.
1: And Addy, uh yeah, any uh, what are the future plans for Ardex?
5: Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the nice things about Ardex was that um, it was a relatively rapid development, um, and part of that was how the project came together, came to be, right, and how we were how we were asked to participate in it. Um, but it so things like that are really great for us because it allows us to. Uh, give students an experience of doing this development and turnaround. And it allow it gives us time for our, our projects for them to work on, for instance. But it also gives us a chance to sort of test some technology in a different environment. Um, so how our mechanics um, actually like operate in these different launch conditions and in these different microgravity conditions. And we sort of use lessons learned from not only the flight, but from our students working on the build and integration to figure out how we're going to do that for for upcoming um, projects. We have we do some different projects like this that are in a, like like I said different environments. So we have some similar hardware flying on um, some upcoming parabolic flights that's going to look at testing things more in lunar gravity. But we're always all of our, A lot of our experiments we need to do in microgravity, so we're always looking for new opportunities to do things in microgravity, and whether it's building something in sort of a CubeSat form factor, um, where you have to sort of miniaturize your experiment, or something on a parabolic flight where we can make it a little bit bigger, it's always just really interesting to figure out what our science questions are and then how we can tweak the environment we're using or tweak um, what, what hardware we already have to, to answer new questions.
1: That's that's really the fun behind science. That's
5: Yeah. Yeah. And I would say like we, it's it's cool for us because we're in a physics department, um, but we, we a lot of our students are engineering majors from a bunch of different disciplines. And then we have students who are physics majors. And sometimes we have the odd biology major who was like in one of our classes and just wants to get lab experience. Right. Um, so it's interesting to see. And a lot of students around here being in Florida are interested in space flight. So it's always great to get them as involved as we can.
1: All right, great. So uh, as we approach the uh, the end of the interview, um, where would you like to be found on the Internet?
4: Uh, you can always drop us a line at uh, www.rocketstar.nyc. And you can find us under Rocketstar Space on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter and Instagram.
3: All right. And then uh, on behalf of Tricep, uh, www.tricep.com. Um, it has access points to all of our other, you know, social media links, when LinkedIn, Facebook, a um, number of other venues. Um, but yeah, start with our website and we have some ways for you to connect and reach out, get more information about us as a corporation, our T-cell software product, uh, as well as what we can do for the small satellite community as an integrator broker.
5: And if we're, if we're ha- if it has to be where we want to be found on the Internet... Um, I will, (laughs) because if if it's anywhere I'd like to be found, it would be the moon probably. But um, uh, (laughs) in terms of finding this on the internet, uh, our projects are at ucf.edu. And then there's a longer URL, which is sciences.ucf. Dot edu slash physics slash microgravity anyway but that's for the Stephen hawking uh, microgravity center and uh you can also find josh so josh colwell is actually the pi of this project he's a professor here in physics also and he and i um and some other colleagues do the walk about the galaxy podcast so you can find us on twitter instagram facebook and the internet for that podcast as well
1: and I've heard some Walk About the Galaxy. So uh, everyone listening, go subscribe, leave them a five-star review, and check it out. Um,
3: one last plug also, the other payload from Brigham Young Un- University. Uh, reach out, look into their engineering department. Dr. David Long is their professor and advisor. Find out about what their students are doing and a lot of the cool tech that they're, they're you know, experiencing and working with, both in the rocketry side and the small satellite side.
1: And now our final question, which is usually this, uh, over under or overrated, underrated quick fire thing that Ben had come up with. Uh, I'm not good enough to do that, to do that. So I would typically ask our old question, which is, well, I don't want to tell you that in case you think it's better than what I'm going to actually ask you. Cause Addie, uh, you inspired me. Let's start with you, Addie. If you could go to one place in the universe, where would you go?
5: Oh, the universe. This is like we do stumpers at the beginning of our episode. So this is very much like that. Um, I mean, so I'm still, I think I'm going to stick with the moon. Uh, I have all of my, most of my scientific interest is, is on the moon. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great destination. And I think it's also a, a feasible one.
1: A particular uh, latitude or terrain or.
5: Uh, well, I'm currently working on a mission to go to the domes. So that's of a lot of interest, but I think, I mean, so I, 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 There's a lot of reasons to go to the South Polar region. Um, and so I'm, I'm on board with that.
3: That's great. Uh,
1: Jason, how about
5: you?
3: All right. Well, now you get the boring answer, right? (laughs) I'm an old Navy guy from the military, missiles, translated that into satellites and rocketry and launching. Um, so my interest in space is very much rooted here on earth and I want to stay there, (laughs) but I am, I am super motivated to always be involved in some aspect of being a part of the programs that are taking everybody else everywhere else they want to go in the universe. Let's say it that way.
1: Uh, Very important and helpful. (laughs) And Chris, where would you like to go?
4: Pluto. Ooh, yeah. So I can put a big sign up there that says it is a planet. (laughs) And also because I want to see it snow on Pluto and see whatever else is going on. Yeah. Maybe find like some, what what was that story about that Clark did years ago or Asimov where they found like a, a, a repository of information from a previous uh, 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 culture or something like that? They finally got out to the Pluto. They didn't realize there was another sun and it had uh, already exploded. You know, it'd just be interesting to, to walk around there and see what we find.
1: Yeah. Pluto is a great choice and I think uh, ending it with those fighting words about its planetary status <laughs> is a uh, good place to go and so Addie, Jason and Chris thank you so much for joining us this is great, this was a lot of fun and uh, yeah just a big thank Thank you. Thank
0: you very much. Thank you. <laughs> All right, so this week in space flight history uh Ben you're back to deliver uh this particular installment so the clue uh last week uh was second of three outcomes shot before leaving independence, successfully forded the river, died of dysentery so I mm. knew when I heard that 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 was a Oregon trail reference where I was pretty yeah. sure about it I didn't yeah. know what the what it was in reference to, but i didn't I don't think I was giving away much when I said mm. that
1: yeah, I was trying to play it cool, but I definitely <laughs> Yeah, you you saw right through it.
2: As soon as I broke out the the word dysentery, I knew that 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 was gonna yeah. be very clear. Mm-hmm.
0: And forded the river. That that kind of clued me into because that's such a that's like a term that you don't normally ever use. Like like if I think of fording the river, I, that's the only <laughs> thing that I think of. Mm-hmm. Who else says that? You know, you to ford that, a river. That's the that's the impact of a video game. <laughs> yep. Yeah, because it was funny. Yeah,
1: David, you you immediately latched on to successfully forded the river. Well, I immediately thought about the dysentery as being yeah. Oregon Trail. so
0: That was the clue. Something to do with the Oregon Trail. And we have four other people who... Uh, picked up on the clue and the actual event as well. So we have Hydrak and we have Deathkin, Law Loving and the Greek. Um, so they all got it. What is the event? And now that I know what the event is, it mm. seems pretty obvious to me because we <laughs> talked about this before. So <laughs>
2: right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 9th of September, 1982. It was the first and only successful launch of the Conestogo rocket. So I want to start. I, I want to like just like throw all my cards on the table and start with uh, the Greeks guess because it's such a great wrap up um, that I think it's kind of going to lay out a, a quick roadmap before we get into some of the more details. So there were three launches uh, performed by this company. Only one of them was successful and it was the Conestoga one. So their the first attempt was the Percheron rocket. Percheron is a breed of horse. Uh, the rocket exploded on the pad, which you know, it was basically the horse being shot. Um, The second attempt was with Conestoga one. A Conestoga is actually a type of covered wagon. If you think about, Oregon Trail and an image pops into your head. That's a Conestoga wagon. Uh, this wagon successfully forded the river, which never seemed to happen successfully in the game, says the Greek. All right. <laughs> then the third and final attempt was the Conestoga 1620. Uh, this rocket, much like every time you played Oregon Trail, died of dysentery 46 seconds into flight. Uh, <laughs> and, and we'll talk more about that. But yes, that, that is exactly the clue. Uh, the fullest of full points to the Greek. Absolutely fantastic. Okay, uh, so Conestoga was the first privately funded commercial rocket. Um, the company that funded it was Space Services Incorporated of America (SSIA), and it's kind of tough because they didn't build the rocket, but they did launch it. And uh, things get a little fuzzy, which is why I don't want to say that they built the rocket, but they—they they, at very least they funded it. The Conestoga was supposed to be a cheap way. To get into space, it, it went through so many different versions that were drastically different from each other. That, and I'm kind of lumping, um, Pertron in here as well. But like when you say Conestoga, what people are thinking of is a rocket made out of surplus LGM 30 Minuteman stages, uh, with side boosters. Um, and it turns out. The side boosters were actually optional, depending on how heavy your payload was. So SSIA intentionally wanted to build a rocket using liquid fuel. This was the Percheron. I believe the engine might have also been called Percheron. Uh, it was a pressure-fed Caralox engine that was just super simple. The reason it's a little tough to say which is what name applies to what is, because the idea was Percheron was just this core uh, fuel tanks and an engine, and you could cluster as many of these cores together as you needed to get to the place you wanted to go. It was really just a, a dead simple uh sort of idea. Which is a great contrast to how commercial space flight works today. You know, the super successful companies tend to be the ones that do things in a very complicated way, well, at least, you know, SpaceX, um, there have been a lot of uh, failed plans, not necessarily failed companies, but like plans that fell through that were very, very complicated. Um, and, you know, ultimately, many, many companies wind up falling back to a more simple solution. But this is like so dead simple. Their first attempt to launch the vehicle, uh, it didn't, there's no ignition. The vehicle didn't light up. Their second attempt, both of these attempts were in uh, 1981. Their second attempt, uh, Percheron exploded on the pad. It's actually kind of an interesting uh, explosion. There's a Scott Manley video that I'll link to that uh, has video of this. But the engine had an overpressure event. So the engine explodes, but the rest of the rocket's basically okay. <laughs> um, but the the upper half of the rocket got torn away from the exploded engine and lower half of the rocket. And it, this upper half goes flying into the air. Um, I call this a pneumatic launch because it's basically just the pressurized uh, uh, oxygen streaming out the back uh, and the, the bottom of, of the tank just becomes like a very poorly designed uh, engine bell. Right. Um, and so The top half of this thing made it up to 50 meters, which is pretty good for a failed launch uh, (laughs) that included an explosion, I guess. Uh, So after this, SSIA says, "Okay, well, you know, Percheron was simple, but we need to go even simpler. And I think they were under the impression that all commercial launch vehicles would wind up being solid rocket motors. So that's what they switched to. The guy who designed Percheron uh, was actually Gary Hudson. Uh, later of Rotary Rocket Company fame. Mm. And they invited him to come on as the head of R&D for their solid design. Uh, But he said, no, you know what? I know what I enjoy doing, and it's Liquid Rockets, not Solid Rockets. So he went off, uh, started Rotary Rocket and a bunch of other things. Not instead, but kind of, instead of hiring Gary Hudson, they wound up hiring Deke Slayton. Now Deke was hired as the president, not as the head of R&D. And it was such a short time later. Uh, it was like right after Deke retired. I don't think that this was a like a swap in replacement, like, hey, we need a big name. I think it was just like they were looking to hire people and Deke was the one who uh, who said yes. Okay, so that's Percheron. Next up is Conestoga 1. The launch of Conestoga 1 happened again on the 9th of September, 1982. And Conestoga One is basically uh the second stage of a Minuteman uh with a a longer fairing than Minuteman would have had. This is really interesting, so they wanted to get an Ares right the the solid rocket engine, but you can't buy one or at very least s s i wasn't one of the companies that was allowed to buy one, but they found this really interesting workaround space vector uh owned an Ares. And Space Vector wasn't allowed to sell it, but Space Vector was allowed to lease it. And (laughs) so they decided to lease this vehicle. And then at the end of the mission, whether it was successful or not, they wouldn't be able to return the vehicle to fulfill their lease agreement. And so then they would just have to pay the rest of them or, you know, pay to replace the property that they did not return. So they basically bought it, but it was it was a lease, (laughs) just a terminated (laughs) lease. Um, So Conestoga one on board had a 500 kilogram mass simulator, about 150 kilograms of that mass simulator was water, like 40 gallons of water. I don't know what the rest was, um, but I believe that they had some scientific instruments on board, but this was a suborbital flight and they successfully ejected the mass simulator at 313 kilometers. And that's Conestoga one. It's Honestly, the most boring in the, in the whole SSIA (laughs) line of rockets. Um, After that, in 1989, they launched uh, a rocket called Starfire. Turns out it wasn't a new rocket. It was just a black brand, uh, but they launched it. Um, in, In December, 1990, SSIA got purchased by another company called EER systems and EER SSIA uh, became partners on uh, a project called Comet, the Commercial Experiment Transporter. This was um, a program being run by CSTAR, the Center for Space Transportation and Applied Research. So CSTAR is running Comet. They actually go and hire EER SSIA to be part of this program. Um, EER would provide the rocket SSIA would uh, provide another part. But the rocket they decided to uh, to go with was called the Conestoga 1620. The 1620 is an identifier that tells you what the configuration of the rocket is. So it's, it's really a, a Conestoga. And Comet was actually a really cool idea. It was supposed to be this low-cost spacecraft bus that could um, separate and do some suborbital components and some orbital components, and it was just supposed to be like this cheap way to go do science in space, in orbit, or you know, near space, near orbit. And the the Conestoga that was going to launch Comet uh, was completely different than Conestoga One. It had a bunch of different configurations, but the main one that we think of had uh caster engines. Casters are now famous as being the uh space shuttle solid engine, uh the the SSRB. Um but it this was like a, a predecessor. Um they're actually the same engines some of them were one of the <laughs> one of the variants was hmm. actually the same caster engine that was that formed the second stage of the scout missile which itself scout used this caster engine as its second stage the caster engine was originally designed for the sergeant missile, the scout second stage was derived from the sergeant missile. Well, Comet faced a lot of delays and budget overruns. Um, They even got renamed from Comet to Meteor. Don't ask me what Meteor stands for. (laughs) Um, But by the time 1995 rolled around, they actually had a mission ready to go. Um, They had payloads. Um, There were materials like material exposure experiments. There was a plant growth experiment where they had seeds that would get Uh, injected into a growth medium, or they would get uh, wetted with water, nutrient or something, and they would see how they grew. Um, There was a GPS radar tracking experiment. I think they were looking at uh, how good GPS was for tracking uh, rockets uh, as opposed to ground-based radar. The thing that SSIA was contracted to build was the return capsule. This thing would actually be able to split off components on its way up, I believe, the suborbital components. And then, uh, the upper stage would finish getting into orbit. And then it had a return capsule that had retro rockets that could slow it back down and come back down to earth and land, um, in off the east coast. So this vehicle launched out of Wallops and the return capsule would have like splashed down basically just offshore, uh, uh on the east coast in, in the Wallops area. It might have been, you know, farther north, but still, it's like this really cool concept. Like, yeah, it sucked that it was, you know, cost overrun. But back in 1995, if we would have had like good, cheap commercial access to space for, you know, these small experiment kind of stuff, like this could have been a staple of university uh, space programs, I think. Mm -hmm. I I have no idea how much it cost. It might've been, I mean, it cost more than they intended. Uh, But, you know, maybe when everything was in place, maybe this could have been a a relatively affordable vehicle. Okay, so the failure of the 1620. Uh, The launch took, the launch, quote-unquote, it lifted off the pad as a launch, took place on the 23rd of October 1995. In this configuration, the 1620 configuration, there were four, or there were six side boosters, a core, an upper stage, and then the payload. And what's really neat is that um, this was a very Kerbal Space Program type of rocket out of those six boosters, only four would ignite on the pad. The four would burn out, they would separate them. And then the two side, or then the, the two remaining side boosters would light up and then they would burn out and be, um, be separated. And then the core would light up and then the upper stage would light up. So it's like a four stage rocket. If you look at photos of the Conestoga 1620 on the pad, you can actually see, uh, differently sized nozzles on the vehicle. There are two, normally you can only see three nozzles at a time. Cause six half and half, you know, the limitations of, uh, perspective, but you can see like two big nozzles and one small nozzle and it's, they're optimized to different altitudes, um, and presumably different thrusts, thrust profiles. It's pretty cool. So in the audio of the launch, um, you can hear the launch announcer say first two motor separation and they lit up four engines at first and they weren't to the point where they were down to the second stage separating two motors. I don't know what was going on, but I kind of wonder if it was a slip referencing a, a lighter configuration. So the other configurations, um, uh, one of the big things that changes is which engine is in place, but I want to just talk about the, the basic configuration because it's easier to grasp. The, the smallest version had two boosters, then one booster, The two side boosters in the core, then a star upper stage, then H-Max upper stage. And I wonder if that's what first two motor separation was intended to be referencing, a a version that just had two side boosters. Anyway, if you want to upgrade and get um, more payload into orbit, you can do three side boosters, the core, then a star, then an H-Max. Then you have the 1620 configuration, which is four side boosters, then two side boosters, then the single core. Than the star upper stage, you can go up one more major configuration, which is four side, two side core star, and then an H max. Um, there are two additional levels above that. And basically it's just adding bigger motors. Um, but the same, the same gross configuration. So Conestoga 1620 Uh, failed in a very spectacular manner. If you uh, watch the video I've got linked in the show notes, the thing just tears itself apart and at least two of the engines go spinning off. Um, You know, they're solid rocket engines. It's like a a spectacle of a rocket crash, right? And the the company said that an unknown source of low-frequency noise was introduced to the vehicle. But basically what... (laughs) what happened is their guidance system was too aggressive. Um, it tried to damp out every single oscillation of whatever this low frequency oscillation was. It couldn't have been uh fuel slosh, (laughs) right? No, no liquid fuel. But anyway, it tried to damp it all out and it ran out of hydraulic fluid. And so the flight termination system was activated and that's what kind of generates, uh, the beginning of this explosion. I don't know why, uh, two of these side boosters managed to keep flying. I would have thought that, you know, if you're if you've got an FTS system on a solid rocket motor, like it's going to be pretty hard for that thing to not explode, I would think. So maybe the intention was to let those engines continue burning cuz they're probably going to be pointed in the right direction. I don't know, it seems seems kind of dicey to me, but whatever.
0: I'm watching it and I'm waiting for it to well, I guess if it doesn't explode immediately, it's not. It's probably not going to. They're like spiraling. It doesn't look very safe to me. Like you say that they're that they probably are going in the right direction, but they totally could have gone in the wrong direction.
2: Oh yeah, you totally could have had this rocket tip over sideways. Yeah, that doesn't seem like something that you can rely on. In this case, it was fine, but like yeah. And saying that the, an unknown source of low frequency noise was introduced seems like a total cop out. It, I bet you, it was just this overly aggressive guidance system. Like I think it made itself. Oscillate. I don't know if it is super reasonable to expect that some sort of noise inherent to the rocket itself or its payload, I suppose, could be strong enough to do something like this. But who who knows? Maybe it started it and then it just kept wobbling.
0: Are you saying that it made adjustments which then like amplified that? Uh... Yeah,
2: it could have, it could have been a resonant thing with an outside a source outside of the guidance system. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was just the guidance system doing this. Who knows? They never released their data as far as I can tell. So EER slash SSIA didn't go out of business. They're actually still in business today. If you've ever heard of a company, they pronounce it Celestis, but their logo has the C so big that it looks like their name is Alestis. but um, Celestis is an ashes to orbit company. So you pay them and they will find a ride uh, for human remains to go to space. And they actually launched uh, some of Gene Roddenberry's ashes into space uh, in uh, April 1997 on a Pegasus rocket. I didn't know this, but that actually wasn't that wasn't the only time that Gene Roddenberry's ashes went to space. I knew that his ashes had gone to orbit, and I I didn't know the details, but I didn't realize that he his ashes <laughs> had actually been taken to space twice. The 1997 Celestis launch Celestis payload was not the first time. The first time was actually back in 1992. Uh, October of 1992, uh, James Weatherby actually um, took some of Roddenberry's ashes as part of his personal, like his personal payload mass. So, like he gave up a T-shirt uh, for some of Gene Roddenberry to come along. Great call! I would do the same. Um, but he, uh, James James Weatherby, took part of uh, Gene Roddenberry to space on a shuttle mission, and like it makes it makes so much sense and like it's really kind of great yeah
1: and you might have heard of them in the news recently because they like literally just weeks ago uh talked about um putting Nichelle nichols ashes mm-hmm. on a vulcan centaur flight and so it's got that vulcan connection to to the star trek universe which
2: is hmm. sure pretty nice wrong cast member but close enough i mean michelle <laughs> nichols was so awesome that she gets to go to space whenever she wants if i was an artemis astronaut I would totally give up a T-shirt to take her to the moon. Um, Chubby in the chat says they launched Bill Pogue's ashes on STP-2 uh, with Falcon Heavy. That's kind of cool. But yeah, there you go. Uh, That's this week in spaceflight history.
1: Well, awesome. Thank you, Ben, for that wonderful (laughs) twist. uh, It's got some successful launches or or a successful launch, but it's got a couple (laughs) of big explosions, which is fun. And just 90s commercial spaceflight is just a pretty, it was a pretty wild time. Mm-hmm. And so, kind of still. just a
2: just a little taste of technology, not enough mm, yeah. enough to be dangerous, so next week
1: is the thirteenth, the nineteenth of September. uh David, do you have a clue for us?
0: All right, I do so next week is uh or next week's clue is for two thousand and seven and it is sponsored in part by ad revenue.
1: Okay, sponsored in part by. Ad oh, Ad that's Press. the clue! <laughs> I was like, "Wait, what is going on?"
0: <laughs> this week's twist is brought to you by um, Manscaped. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, so if you think you understand, if you think you know what this uh, meta clue is uh, referring to, um, you can uh, tweet at us with the hashtag this week or send us an email. And good luck.
0: Good luck. So let's do upcoming spaceflight events. Looks like we have like six of them or so so Mm -hmm. lots of stuff happening this week as well uh dennis what's the first thing
1: yeah well first up uh after our interview Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh you can you know have all that context and excitement for rocket stars uh cowbell launch so the launch of the cowbell and so right again this is a suborbital aerospike flight uh out of mojave and it's september 10th i don't really have a time uh for the lift off for you but uh you can keep an eye out for that, I'm sure, on social media. And so, yeah, good uh, good luck uh, and congratulations already to uh, uh, University of Central Florida, Brigham Young University, uh, Tricep, and the Rocket Star team for uh, this launch. Just getting it together is cool enough.
2: All right. After that is a little bit of an exciting launch. Um, it's going to be the first flight of RS-1 from Able Space Systems. It's going to be carrying two satellites for L2 Aerospace. This launch is planned for Saturday, September 10th at 2200 UTC. Uh, The window runs uh, past UTC midnight to 0130 hours UTC. Um, And that's flying out of the Pacific Spaceport Complex, Alaska.
0: And then after that, on the 10th as well, uh, we have another Starlink. This is Group 4-2. And uh, this particular launch will also feature Blue Walker 3. So this is a giant, massive satellite. Um, It's being launched by AST Space Mobile. So this is, I guess, what we were talking about last week. Like, this is what, I guess, like an actual... Satellite-based cell phone communication network might look like, or at least the first part of one. Mm. Big giant antenna,
2: <laughs> <laughs> ten meters. Ten
0: meters, uh, but they can fit it in a Falcon 9 payload fairing. So, but they can't do a, they can't do Starlink 2. So, I guess this, I guess Starlink 2 will be even bigger in some way. Can't wait to see that. But, um, yeah, as for this launch, it is uh, launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5, as per usual. Launch time is 2351 UTC. It'll be launching from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. So, as always, check that one out. And if not, just, again, wait a week, or less, actually.
1: (laughs) And then another launch for you on uh, September 11th or 12th, depending on where you live. Um, there will be Firefly's second crack at a flight. So this is flight two. Um, a lot's been happening at that company. I'm sure you've been hearing in the in the news as far as uh, management at all. And so, yeah, so this will be the second test flight. Um, they had a little trouble on their first one, but uh, let's hope they uh, reach Leo this time. And so this one has a window that is from September 11th at 2200 UTC to September 12th at 0200 UTC. And so it'll be flying out of uh, Vandenberg Sp- uh, Space Force Base um, with uh, Slick uh, 2 West, which is very close to the airfield, as I recently learned, uh, looking at maps of the base.
2: Okay, after that, we have a tentative Long March launch. This would be a Long March 7A. On the NASA Space Flight Forum, somebody mentioned um, a potential payload, but it sounds like that payload was already confirmed uh, to fly on a different vehicle. So. Um, this is, this is just going off of the, uh, the no TAMs for the time and then, um, the tour operators, um, at Wenchang, uh, for the, the launch vehicle. But we're looking at Tuesday, September 13th at 1200 UTC, uh, for a good couple hours to 1600 hours UTC. Um, yeah, maybe a Long March 7A.
0: So after that, on September 14th, we have the launch of a, a Rocket Lab Electron. The name of this mission is The Owl Spreads Its Wings. Gotta love those names. Uh, so this is um, launching into a sun-synchronous orbit. It is the second of three launches of the STRIX satellite, and that's part of the synspective SAR constellation. So the launch date for this, uh, like I said, is on the 14th, and the window is an instantaneous launch window, 2030 UTC. Launching from the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand, so check it out. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Okay, so with that, let's jump with the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Mike, Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield, Deskin, Colin, Greek, Chavi, Zach of Raking, Taps, Gopal, and Leon Running Man for joining our recording session today, and helping us make correction burns on the
2: fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
3: For
0: more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can
1: talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later.
1: Bye, everybody. See you. <laughs>